Welcome to the eLaborate Topics Podcast, where we focus on lab-specific strategies for medical laboratory professionals. We're proud to be the healthcare detectives that work behind the scenes to get the results needed to influence medical decisions. Let's grow together and jump right into the lab. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Elaborate Topics podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Stephanie Whitehead, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Leticia Nunez. Hi, how are you? Hello, it's great being here with you. Thank you for joining the show. Um, before we get started, if you are listening right now, take a pause, take a minute, don't be stingy and share this episode with a laboratory friend or a healthcare colleague. The Elaborate Topics is a weekly podcast where myself and my other co-hosts, Taiwana Wilson and Lona Small, bring you weekly topics related to the laboratory and leadership and just topics to help you on and off the bench. We're affiliated with LabVine now, so you can catch us on LabVine's LabStream or any podcast platform. Today, we have a very exciting episode. We've done a lot of episodes, and I'll put them uh, in the show notes on this episode, but we've done a lot of episodes on health and wellness. And today, Dr. Nunez is going to give us a fresh look um, based on her current research on health and wellness and how it's all interconnected um, for laboratory professionals. So before we get started, um, many of people who know you as friends, like myself, call you Letty. So I'll call you Letty. Um, give us a little bit about your background. How did you get to where you are today? Thank you, Stephanie. And uh, so, again, I am Leticia Nunez Argote. I go by Leticia Nunez because of, it's shorter. Um, so I am a certified medical laboratory scientist, and I have recently completed my PhD in health policy and management from the University of Kansas. Um, I have worked in laboratories and taught laboratory science for many years, and I am very interested in the laboratory workforce, uh, both in recruiting and training of people into the profession, but also in keeping this individuals uh, and my colleagues healthy and empowered so that we can take on the responsibility of saving lives every day. And so of course, this is something that is very close to my heart. Um, just a little bit about where I'm from. I'm originally from uh, Mexico, the country. Um, so I was born and raised in Mexico City. And um, once I um, I actually attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, for my CLS degree. And after I graduated from there, I uh, worked in the laboratories for a couple of years. Then I went back to get my master's in public health. Um, and so I've uh, been in, in a lot of different environments. So, for example, I worked as a medical technologist in North Carolina. I worked as public health program coordinator in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, and then my first faculty appointment was actually in Arkansas. And after that, I moved up to uh, north to the University of Kansas, where I've been teaching in laboratory, uh, specifically in immunology and immunohematology. So I'm a very big blood bank immunology person. I've also taught hematology as well for both the doctoral uh, uh, level and the undergraduate level in clinical laboratory sciences. So that's a little bit of uh, what I've done and where I've been. You got a very extensive background. <laughs> you know, I always like to ask this question to everybody that I interview, um, but I've only met one other laboratory and yet who went directly into the field. So did you just stumble upon laboratory medicine or is that something you knew you wanted to do um, when you entered undergrad? 
Oh, it is a little bit of both. I was uh, I graduated from high school in Mexico, and in the last year of my high school career, there was an opportunity for me to come to the United States to go to school. Um, but I also had a backup school in Mexico because, you know, never know, right? And the backup school, actually, I was going to go straight into uh, the equivalent of the laboratory science degree uh, in the Mexican school. So I already kind of knew that this area was where I wanted to focus. But the big reveal, the big, like, you know, aha moments came when I was talking to an advisor as a between my first and second years in, in, in undergrad. And they directed me to the actual... CLS uh, degree. And so I was very lucky to have a person who knew about the degree that caught me at that particular time because they were able to guide me to take all the prereqs. Um, and I only spent in applying because a lot of this have to, you know, have to apply to the programs separately from the actual university. So I spent that year working on my myself and I was able to enter a program as it, on my third year and graduated in four years uh, with an MLS. So at 21, I was making a great income. I had five job offers uh, from hospitals. Uh, I just picked the one that, well, you know, had the best benefits and had free parking um, because they were all amazing and they were all generalist positions, which is what I wanted. So I was very, very fortunate to have encountered someone who was able to guide me at that stage of my career so that I could... Uh, encounter this career and get it done within those four years of my bachelor's degree. And I do know that a lot of people are not that fortunate. Well, you you are exactly right. And what Letty said is very important. So I'll also link in the show notes an opportunity. If you are not um, a mentor with a professional organization like ASCLS or ASCP, you should become one because Letty is the prime example of where a mentor can step in and be a huge assistance in guiding somebody um, in a career and helping them along their journey. So if you're not a mentor or if you need a mentor, uh, consider connecting with one of those professional organizations in um, offering some of your expertise. But back to you, Letty. So, but then you made the transition to be, becoming an educator. So tell me, what are some of your favorite parts about being an educator? What do you like most about teaching the future generation of uh, clinical laboratory scientists? Um, yeah, so I, I actually enjoy teaching very much. Uh, most of it is being able to see the journey that individuals take as they go through the program from you know, being kind of hesitant, and then excited, and then having to go through the grueling process of a professional training program, um, because this is uh, becomes very difficult. Sometimes, you know, you come uh, from a community college or a liberal arts school where you have a variety of topics, and now you have to hyper-focus. And so I like to be able to show learners and discover uh, the amazing uh, importance of this profession. So I really like that. I've been involved with admissions. I like to go out to recruit and to talk to uh, young folks about this career as young as uh, elementary school, middle school, and obviously high school, because we want to catch people early. So being able to be in contact with the learners and then also actually seeing them graduate and then going into the workforce and for those of uh, us that are fortunate enough to be uh, connected with the medical center, and that's been my experience in both of my um, educator positions, I am able to go upstairs and see them as, you know, perfect examples of uh, professional workers and doing their job saving lives. So I, I like to see their confidence operating the equipment, performing tests, calling their colleagues on the phone and reporting criticals. And it's just 
very nice to see that journey. So I really, really appreciate that. And it keeps me going um, in terms of this career change that I made. I really, I really like that. And you, um, you know, talking about your education and all your accomplishments um, and congratulations on um, successfully defending your um, dissertation for your PhD um, recently have been able to um, mold all of your passions, your passions for clinical lab science, your passions for health and wellness um, into your research. And so that's what I think the listeners are going to be most interested in. And that's what I'm very interested in hearing about. So why don't you tell all of us about your research on muscular skeletal muscular pain and the well-being of laboratory professionals? Uh, yes, definitely. And so just a little bit of the background, um, the uh, department uh, that I joined for my PhD is very broad. It's, it's called health policy and management. And one of the reasons why I joined that is because I wanted to be able to address some of that, um, what we call upstream problems, uh, such as, you know, if, you, if you're only, uh, what we talk about in, in terms of upstream in public health is um, when people are sick, and we encounter this in the healthcare team, um, they're sick right there. You, you get in the river, you pull them out. So you save their lives right then and there, right? You know, you, you find that cancer so you can treat or you uh, detect those high levels of, of uh, cholesterol or, or liver enzymes so you can help them get better. But what I wanted to do is try to understand the, the problems that cause those problems. So going upstream to see, like, why do people get sick in the first place? What is happening around them? And so... Um, that this program was very helpful. Now, none of the people in the program were clinical people like like me. So um, I brought in this expertise of having practice in the healthcare system. And that was very, very fortunate because I ended up appearing with experts on occupational health. And that is where I really started pivoting and starting turning into asking questions about who and how do we understand the health and well-being of our health team. And all of this kind of came to a head when COVID-19 hit. So I had the pleasure of being enrolled in the program during the pandemic. Um, and that is when a lot of these concerns of um, healthcare for our, our workers in the healthcare team were exacerbated, right? And so that led me to start asking questions like what causes health problems for our colleagues in the laboratory? And I don't know about you, Stephanie, but I heard all these stories about the nurses and the doctors. And we, as a part of the healthcare team, are not necessarily always mentioned. And what I found, study or asked about our experience. And so that is what led me to uh, propose for my dissertation and as part of my research to measure using tools that exist um, indicators such as uh, the standardized Nordic questionnaire to ask about musculoskeletal pain. And, and that one actually is very exciting. We found for the first time in a national sample of laboratory professionals in the United States, what are the levels of pain and what parts of the body are experiencing the most pain for these workers. And so we're gonna be putting out our publications within the next couple of months uh, with the results, but what I can tell you right now is the main places where our laboratory colleagues are reporting pain in the past week were um, hands, wrists, and ankles, and feet, as you may imagine, having worked. You know, for those of you working in the laboratory, we're on our feet all the time, we're working with our hands. 
But then interestingly, in the long term, so up to a year of reporting, the pain, the chronic pain is mostly in the shoulders, neck and lower back. And so this to me tells me that even though in the laboratory, we've done a lot of great work with our ergonomic controls, trying to uh, help avoid some of this damage to the body of our, our colleagues, there is still damage that is happening and the pain is being reported. And so if you pair that with the shortages of laboratory professionals having to work overtime and not being able to take these off, um, that is very concerning. Um, so this is a part of the research that we found. Um, we hope that these findings will help inform our leadership uh, so that they can notice if their employees are spending too much time in the same positions, in the same benches, if the benches are not comfortable, um, and that they can actually implement changes that can help uh, avoid this long-term uh, issues such as pain. This is really interesting because as a um, leader, I think um, I've paid attention over um, the the past three years, especially with COVID, about, you know, the signs of burnout and the signs of um, different, you know, mental issues with, with staff and being aware of when people may not be may not be able to perform at their optimal level because of things that might be going on mentally. But then also as a leader, we should also be um, aware of, just like you said, the ergonomics of our um, our work environments and making sure that you're paying attention to basically the entire environment, the, the culture, the, you know, the atmosphere, um, you know, but also as well as where, how high are the chairs? Or is everything standing high? Are people on their feet too long? So it's a lot to grasp on. Um, but I think your uh, research is very important because obviously if we don't address these things, you know, like you said, our workforce shortage, it's very um, popularly and widely documented, um, will not get any better. And so in your research or what you found or maybe what you and your colleagues have looked at um, with some of these common signs and, you know, understanding where we kind of stand in terms of our workforce. Why is it important, in your opinion, for lab leaders to pay attention to this publication when it comes out? You know, if not addressed properly, what are some of the impacts of these poor or maybe, you know, not adequate or subpar working conditions for our laboratory professionals? What what are some of those impacts? Um, so, and, and, you know, I know you, you've, um, your podcast focused a lot on burnout. We did look at that as well, but uh, for the pain part, uh, one of the things is that maybe having, um, not having a plan to, um, to address some of the issues of the ergonomic side uh, when something like COVID happens, what that ends up causing is that those plans go out the window. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that can actually create a situation where your workers are having to adapt to new circumstances on um, in a very short amount of time without enough time to uh, really think it through and say, okay, we're setting up this brand new bunch of uh, instruments or equipment that we need to test for this brand new disease, right? Um, it has to happen quickly and there's not a, you know, a lot of time or resources, but you still have to bring people to the table to try to address all of the issues of ergonomics, how people are going to be comfortably doing the work, what happens if 
somebody cannot come in to replace someone because they just had positive, like those kinds of things. I know it's it's a lot to take in and it has been a lot this past three years, but uh, a lot of people consider that the ergonomic side and um, it kind of we've addressed it or it's, you know, there's things that have been done. There's um, so we and we don't see the effects immediately. It takes, you know, months and years sometimes to develop these types of problems. So uh, some of the common things that I would look for is if people are, you know, asking people if they are having, you know, any kinds of feelings of pain, there are some tools that people can use to assess how they're feeling. And they don't have to tell you, they just, you know, reminding them if you're feeling, you're sending an email, if you're feeling pain or, or stress in any part of your body, make sure that you make your leader aware so they can like rotate you out, move you somewhere else. But um, so far, uh, the findings that we have is that people are feeling the stress and the burnout and the pain um, and a prolonged state of psychological exhaustion, as we know, and physical exhaustion can cause people to um, to just bur be burned out and to either become very depersonalized and decrease their their work productivity um, or even just start looking to leave the field. So I think if a person suspects that they may be experiencing burnout, they should talk to health professionals. Um, there should be um, definitely a way for them to um, look at their burnout or assess their pain. You know, there's some scales that are available. And just a reminder that that they can try to see if they're experiencing these feelings of either psychological burnout or physical pain and physical damage so that they can use the benefits they have, like sick days or time off, to get better. But that's, you know, that's very difficult, again, because not having enough people to do the testing makes that uh, into a very difficult situation. I know it's a very compound problem. And you know, I don't want to be sarcastic, but how many people do we know in the lab that seem, you know, depersonalized <laughs> and you just think it's just somebody's personality, but actually it could be, like you said, something um, physical or mental that is going on that we haven't addressed or maybe even recognized. So I'm curious in your research and the things that you've looked at, because um, I've been a technologist before in laboratories where I've participated in ergonomic studies and we've... Um, also, as a from a leader, you know, implemented um, professionals to come in and perform ergonomic studies. But you know, there are still tasks that are repetitive and um, innate in the nature of our work. You know, maybe looking through a microscope, you can always get adjustable desks um, and you know adjustable stands for the microscope. But you're still, you know, looking at the microscope, typing, um, and maybe you know holding the phone or kind of like tilting your head over to talk to a phone, uh, talk on the phone while you look up a critical value or a value on the computer. So you're kind of like have your neck kind of tilted while you're typing. All of those motions are, I think, just typical and, and probably unconscious in um, the nature of our work. So have you found anything new um, that we could look at in terms of ergonomics that we maybe not have thought of in the past that could be threats? So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because definitely all of the things that you just mentioned uh, were things that were considered um, by, and, and I actually had the opportunity to do focus groups, not just the survey for the study. So we actually talked to people. And one of the things that blew my mind that was like, well, duh, is um, the biohazard bags that are Ziploc bags, right? 
And so uh, a couple of the, the people that we talked about were, you know, getting that carpal tunnel type of pain because they were assigned to that front end where you receive all the samples. And opening those bags is a really unnatural kind of weird motion. Um, and all of our specimens pretty much come in those bags. And so uh, I know that there's been mechanical ways to address the on-capping, for example, where there's decappers on some of the lines. And that has addressed some of that motion, repetitive motion of on-capping tubes and so on. But I just, you know, realized that having so many of those, if you have people who are in charge of taking specimens out of this biohazard bags, that was like, wow, apparently that motion is definitely causing uh, some issues for the the hands and arms for people that I was like, oh, that's that's an area that I had never really considered. The other thing that I realized too is that um, one of our, our, our participants commented on the layout. So they had actually leaned this lab. They had, the leadership had taken the time to put things where they were supposed to go, et cetera. And then COVID happened and the new equipment came in and then it turned into this they they said we had to walk five miles like every day because of the changes that had to be put in as an emergency measure. And they, they were exhausted by the time like the day ended. So even just um, can, those considerations of how far the people have to go to get to things what they need, um, that's also a very, very important thing that I know some people have addressed, but it's not necessarily being addressed everywhere, particularly in older facilities that don't have a good square footage for their laboratories. And then the last thing I would say was it's specifically for the pandemic was proximity, because laboratory spaces are so closed that even though there were the guidelines of stay six feet apart, there is absolutely no way that people were able to do that. And they reported that as a concern for themselves and the safety of their coworkers, that um, during that type of situation, there's no way you can be that far apart from people. So in terms of risks, um, these were things that kind of, it sounds funny and weird, but recommendations that I've seen is um, encouraging people to take more frequent, shorter breaks instead of having them take like, those longer breaks, and I'm guilty, you know, I would be working for six hours straight and then take like a 30 minute break and then finish my my 10 hour shift. Um, just because, you know, that was the workload. But as you mentioned, you're sitting in the microscope for two hours, your head is going to hurt. Um, and so maybe having uh, some ergonomic adjustments like a timer or encouraging, you know, some kind of indicator that says, hey, it's been, it's been 10 minutes, it's been half an hour, like get up. Um, that can definitely have a, an impact in the long term for our colleagues, I hope. So I'm really excited to do more studies on this. This sounds like really interesting stuff and, and maybe even um, research and looking at, you know, what we commonly do, but in a different way, because I had never thought about processors, you know, typically when you're thinking about ergonomics in the laboratory, you really focus on the testing personnel, but you may not be focused on, you know, your support staff or your administrative, your billing people um, sitting at desk or even your phlebotomist leaning over um, to perform draws, you know, are your chairs at a correct height or are they even adjustable for shorter or taller individuals? So um, it helps you kind of think of everybody's job and where is there a threat in them, um, you know, 
physically, uh, you know, experiences some of these things in the long term. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question because, Mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned this in the intro, but our podcast is about giving our listeners, you know, actionable items that they can take away from this podcast um, and Mm -hmm. live better um, on and off the bench. And so if there is a technologist or a phlebotomist or a front processing person listening. I, I know you, may, you just gave some good advice about taking more breaks, but what are maybe some other things they can do to um, continue to advocate for themselves in their workplace so they can have a healthy work environment and health uh, long-term long into their retirement? Um, so uh, some of the things that I would encourage people to do, and this is just um just in general, as far as uh, taking advantage of some of the things that are already in existence. Uh, one thing that we found is that a lot of uh, the laboratory people we talked to were not necessarily aware of our employee assistance programs. Um, and so even so, obviously, on at the bench, uh, definitely um, advocate for yourself and, and the ability to take some more frequent breaks or being able to rotate from one activity to the other. So not doing the same activity all day or multiple days, that would be something. And I'm sure managers and leadership, you know, that you can come to an arrangement to try to, you know, make sure that that is something that is built into your schedule. Um, Because in in the end, it benefits everyone. If you, if a person doesn't get hurt, then they can come to work. Um, So, and a big outside more of like that perspective is also taking advantage of those employee assistance programs and not all places have them, uh, but the places that do, we find that they're extremely underutilized. Maybe um, because of lack of awareness or understanding of what the scope of these services are. Uh, but in general, they offer things like, um, you know, even for mental health, they can offer to connect with the providers or even free sessions uh, so that people, because sometimes you don't want to go pay a provider and if that doesn't work out, then you just give them much money, right? But if you can try a couple of providers to try to decide who would be the best fit for you, and then maybe you can find someone that can help you with your, your mental health situation. And that's something that this uh, EAP programs provide um, that's already available. Also, they, they provide financial services, legal services, and sometimes the stress that we're feeling is not even necessarily work-related. It's family and, you know, personal thing related, related to our personal life. And so I I think that uh, both as laboratory professionals and as leaders in, in the laboratory field, encouraging each other to take advantage of these types of initiatives um, and making sure that people are aware of them so that there, uh, there can be a better, um, I mean, culture of health and wellness uh, amongst our, our peers. I think those are some of the things that I would think are hopefully available to most workers um, in, in our laboratory profession. And sometimes they even include their families. You can actually have your family members benefit from these uh, EAP programs. Yeah, I really, um, I'm an advocate for people getting away from using the, fr- the phrase work-life balance. Um, because if you think about it, there you can't separate the two. Like you said, some of the stress that you bring to work is not even from work. It's from things that might've happened in your personal life. Um, things that might've happened on your way to work, things that, you know, getting in a fight at home and then you bring that to work. And so, um, it's all one thing, work and life. Sometimes people's work is their life. Sometimes people bring their life to their work. <laughs> uh, and so the, you know, it's, it's not me balancing the two. It's me encompassing everything. Um, 
at home, you know, having a healthy, having a healthy structure that supports my work and at work, having a healthy structure that supports maybe whatever I'm going through at home. I know that also in um, professional organizations like um, the American Society for Clinical Laboratory Science or ASCLS, um, you are an advocate for diversity um, inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, as the chair of uh, DAC, the Diversity Advisory Council. So I'm curious in this research, have you been able to find any intersections that um, may also fold, you know, you know, opportunities with pain, our health, our wellness, and also any opportunities we have for diversity and inclusion in the laboratory, um, any in- intersections of all of those things in your research? Uh, thank you. So, yes, well, one of the things that we, we do, what I, but that I found very important to address, especially as a person who designed this research, was that I was relying heavily on professional contacts as an insider, as a member of this community. And but we are a large and heterogeneous group of people. And um, it, it goes from, like you mentioned, you know, all the way from the front side, the processors, phlebotomy, even patient facing individuals, all the way to our testing and our, uh, our colleagues in pathology and, and all of these different areas of the laboratory. And so one thing that I found is that depending on the level of um, certification, for example, I, I, I did find that a lot of the rural areas, and that's uh, one of the main uh, things that I focus on in my research because I live in a rural state of, and the, the mid, you know, the Midwest, um, is trying to find what are the needs of our of colleagues who work in smaller communities or in rural communities. However, I did find that there are a lot of people who work in these communities who are very passionate. They want to work there. They want to be there. Uh, and they do come from underrepresented groups uh, of or that are usually in STEM. So people who are uh, identified as Black or Hispanic or people who are um, un, from different gender backgrounds. And so that is something that, that I would like to study more because it feels like when I look at uh, a number of studies that come out on laboratory professionals, the profession very much like a lot of other professions in, in medicine and healthcare is very white, very female as far as nursing and, and laboratory goes. And so I think that dilutes a lot of the life experiences that other groups of people have. It also is very regional as well. Like the, the coasts have different uh, representation than those of us who live over here in the middle. Um, so for my particular research, I would like to know why a lot of these people don't belong to professional societies, because I find that belonging to these professional societies can bring you closer to other individuals who are having similar experiences. And so that part um, really kind of has touched me from both the research side and the service side. And so I want to combine the two uh, because one of my biggest goals, like overarching, is to bring more diversity into the laboratory workforce. But to I would I want to do that in a way that serves these people that are going to be coming into an environment of work that they can see themselves doing for a long term. And so in order to do that, there's a lot of different obstacles and challenges that we need to confront, uh, especially, you know, starting even from who is admitted to the programs 
uh, who is, you know, the educator in the programs, once graduation happens, where the people go work, and who are the population they're serving. And so in rural areas, for example, their populations are sometimes more diverse, uh, uh, older, and um, socioeconomic status is different uh, as those that serve in cities in large urban areas. So, so to me, that's something that needs to be acknowledged because if we want to have a laboratory workforce that is reflective of our patient population, we need to work at all those levels. And so that's why it's one of my kind of my I, I want to be a part of the movement and, and representing from the laboratory side uh, so that we can have a more diverse and inclusive environment for for our colleagues. That's so important because I, I feel, you know, I, as a, another person with the MPH, I feel like our personal experience and our personal health is public health. And so it's awesome to see that you have been able to mold all of your fields of education with your PhD and your MPH and your laboratory science background together for the movement um, uh, and the betterment of your community and the diversity and our health profession um, and the well-being and researching the well-being and health of our work environments. Um, and with all of that, with all of those things that you were doing, you're a new mom, you're, you know, top five, 40 under 40 honoree. I mean, <laughs> Dr. Nunez, what is next for you in your career? What, what else can you do? <laughs> Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, it's been it's been a long time coming. I I honestly want to try as much as I can to use this um, the blessings that I've received through my career so far to um, to pull other people and to 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 bring other people to the table with me and also to continue the dialogue with those that have come before me. Um, I think I'm 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 at that time in my career. You know that middle area where um, that is really what I, I must be doing because um, not not all of the people who are having you know the trailblazers people who have been here before me um, I want to acknowledge all of their contributions and I work with some excellent people who have been in the profession way longer than I've been around uh, but also I want to make sure that we are allowing our the future our our people coming after us and are growing with us to uh, feel included. And so in my mind, my, my, biggest, my biggest hope is that in the next five to 10 years, I can produce um, enough information, enough data, enough, um, enough backing to probably and hopefully create more uh, regulation, legislation, and even laws that support laboratories. My, my hope would be that we do another CLIA but something that makes sense for for now, as opposed to for almost 40 years ago, so for 35 years ago. So my, my hope is that I can help help our community move forward in the new modern laboratory with a diverse group of colleagues, um, you know, for the next, I don't know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we're all around to see it. And I know with... <laughs> With all the support that you have, you can definitely make it happen. So as we wrap up, I've got a two-part question for you. Um, the first part is if you could go back and share one piece of advice with your younger self early on in your career, what would it be? And the second part is what advice would you give to listeners listening to this podcast who um, 
may be, you know, riveted by all the things that you said, just like myself, um, and want to know more about what they can do to better themselves in their professional career? Uh, sure. So um, let me hit the first one first, because it's a little shorter. Um, so one piece of advice that I would give myself would be to have a little more fun. Um, because I'm a very serious and uh, objective driven person. And that's taken me a long way. But there have been times when I felt like um, I didn't, I didn't have quite the relax, you know, relaxation or times to kind of breathe and pause. And also to forgive myself for my mistakes. Obviously, we all learn from our mistakes and we make them along the way. So having the ability to have more fun and be more, um, I don't know, I've allowed myself to laugh at my mistakes would have been um, maybe a little bit, you know. You're a serious lab person? What? (laughs) I know, I know. It's hard because that's our personality. But that's that's what I would hope to tell myself whether or not I would pay attention to my own advice. That's a different story. Um, but um, so back to your question about what I would say as advice for our listeners, um, especially those uh, who are entering the profession that are just getting started and they're entering this very difficult at this very difficult time is that, you know, just remind yourself why you're here. Um and we are all here because we believe that we can make a difference in our patients' lives. And I can tell you, having recently being a patient myself, I cannot imagine having that experience without the trust that I've put on laboratory and testing and knowing that people were there for me when I needed it. So just remind yourself every day that what you do always is making a difference. Um, because that t- that really sometimes when it gets dark and we're tired and it's been a long day and the system was down and that's what really gets you through. And then for those of you who've been around a lot, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't leave just yet. We need you. Um, and uh, thank you for all the work you do because um, we we need your advice. We need you to stick around and help us grow. So um, that's that's kind of what I would like to say to those of you out there listening. Dr. Yunus, people who may be listening and want to connect with you after this episode um, to maybe ask you more questions about um, your PhD, your research, or just how to be mentored by you, how can they reach out to you and connect with you? Um, sure. So um, I'm actually on social media. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is um, lena 4 number four, love and lab. So love and lab all word. Um, that's also, I have an Instagram account under that. And for those of you who may want to share some of your experiences, uh, I am looking for additional funding to do another round of surveys. That is through our um, Instagram account at lab, W-O-H-S. Um, and we also have a Facebook page with that. And so along with publication and promotion of our current results, we are going to be doing additional rounds of uh, recruiting to talk to more laboratory professionals about their experiences. So um, I always wait for funding because I want to provide compensation to anyone who helps me and shares their experience. But uh, that's where we're going to be sharing most of our research. So uh, those are our social media. Uh, Always you can email me at my um, uh, my work at KUMC um, 
That's L-N-U-N-E-C-A-R-G-O-T-E at knunc.edu. And I hope that we can connect. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for having me. I really enjoy your show and I wish you the best on this season. <laughs> Thank you. And for the listeners out there, we hope that you enjoyed another amazing episode. This one featuring Dr. Nunez um, with some really interesting research about our health and our wellness and our pain as laboratory professionals. If you like what you heard, be sure to share this episode and um, jump in our discussion. We've got a LinkedIn Elaborate Topics group and we want to hear what you thought about this episode and maybe future episodes that you might want to hear about. Maybe we'll have to bring Dr. Nunez back and do a part two <laughs> and hear what she has to say about other topics. Um, thank you for listening today. And until our next show next week, have um, all of you guys have a really great day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elaborate Topics, where your hosts discussed relevant strategies for laboratory professionals. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to us on directimpactbroadcasting.com. Stay tuned for another episode with information you can use to excel in your laboratory career.